Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Good evening. If you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, that's where we'll be tonight. Acts chapter 3. We are going to continue on in our study of the book of Acts and uh, hopefully be able to get through most of chapter 4 along with chapter 3 because uh, those really tell one story and I hate to break up a story. I, I, I wonder sometimes about the guy back in ancient days who actually put the divisions in there for the chapters and the verses and I think sometimes he just went, wow, this is, this is too long of a story so we're just going to chop it in half right here and there's really no rhyme or reason to it uh, because I think this story is one of those that had he, he should have just kept the story pieced together. Uh, and, uh, so we're going to do that. We're going to put the story back together and try to make sure that we're understanding the whole uh, event that happens here with Peter and John and the healing of the lame man as we dig into chapter 3 and chapter 4. So hopefully by now you are there and we can jump straight on in to what we're going to discuss. That when you get to the book of Acts, I think one of the details that we often don't think about is just how much has happened and how short of a time. We don't, you know, we, we because of these breaks, you know, we, we have the gospel story over here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we have the story of the church, Acts. And because they're in different books, we tend to not realize just how continual the story is and how much the book of Acts just picks up right there where the book Luke ends. But when you really put it together in a timeline, you get a sense of how quickly things are happening. Uh, I personally, in my understanding of the timeline, placed Jesus' death in 33 A.D., so if that's the case, and he dies on a Friday in 33 AD, uh, at the time when Passover would have, been, would have been April 3rd in 33 AD. He resurrects three days later, the Sunday, which would be April 5th. He ascends into heaven by the time you get to, eight, or to May 15th. Pentecost happens on May 25th. Not really a long time, is it? To go from one major event, like the ministry of Jesus, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, how much was involved with arresting him and taking him before Pilate and making sure that he was going to be accused and we were going to be able to manipulate Pilate into crucifying him and hanging him on the cross so that he could be publicly humiliated and, and it would help us win over the favor of the Jews because even Rome thought this man was guilty. And so we're going to make sure he is publicly executed. And less than two months later, Pentecost happens. That's not a long time. Not only is that not a long time for us, 
Imagine in a culture where you're not inundated with all the news every single day and we know of every major event that's happening all over the world. Your only concern is what's happening right here. And the last real big major thing that happened was Jesus on the cross. And now here we are just a few weeks after that and we're to Pentecost. All of this is happening very quickly. And I think especially for the Jewish leaders, these things are happening very quickly. They were under the impression that they could cut off the head and stop this thing. We see that over in John chapter 11 and verse 50. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than for the whole nation to perish. What is it that Caiaphas is looking for? Let's stop this at the head. If we can get rid of Jesus, then the whole movement dies. That's, that's what they're attempting. If you look later on, chapter 18 of John, verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Yet, that man died, and yet here are his people growing and strength, and they have grown to the point to where they are over 3,000 people strong right here in the heart of a city. And Jerusalem was not a large city. From the, the, the guesses are all over the board, but the most common guess for Jerusalem population is that it would have been on normal days, and this is a wide range, I grant you, but twenty-five to 50,000 people. Now that's not very large. Gadsden, in the city of Gadsden, which is not that large of a city, is 35,000 people. Uh, that, you know, when there were feasts, like the Passover or Pentecost, the population would swell to somewhere around 200,000 people, which is equivalent to Birmingham. Birmingham population, I think in the last count, was 212,000 approximately. So you go from Gadsden to Birmingham in the course of just a couple of days. That lasts for several days, maybe up to a week, and then those people go home, and we're about down to 25, maybe 35,000 people on average. Not only that, Jerusalem wasn't a large city as far as size. The walls of Jerusalem were about four miles long if you were to kind of just run around the outside of it. That would be your track, four miles. It enclosed about a one square mile space. One square mile for 35 plus thousand people. Could you imagine? Could you imagine fitting everyone in the city of Birmingham into one square mile for a few days for a feast? I mean, that would be like living at a rock concert for several days, right? Everybody's shoved in there, shoulder to shoulder, chest to back. That's kind of how it would have been during those feast days. And 
And even on a, a common day, that's a lot of people to squeeze within one square mile. Just to give you an idea of what that is like, that is smaller than UAB. Do you realize that? One square mile is smaller than UAB and not much larger than the outlet malls in Leeds. That's how small Jerusalem was back in these days. And I don't think sometimes we realize you take a, a fast series of events, major events, like the crucifixion of Jesus, which was, we know, a major event because do you remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they are astonished that this man hasn't heard what's been going on? Who, where have you been? How do you not know about what's going on right now? I mean, it was a major event for this rabbi to be crucified. And then in less than two months, you've got this church that is swelling in the midst of this city. 3,000 people, a tenth of the city has now become Christians. A tenth. Uh, that, that's amazing. It's amazing that they're able to have that kind of effect. You can imagine just how much the word would spread about this group of people there in Jerusalem. That, that a tenth of the city has been baptized, has converted to following after this, this uh, crucified criminal. How do we stop this? You can imagine these leaders are scared of what's coming next. I mean, remember Caiaphas' words? Caiaphas is still there in the leadership of, Jew, of the Jews. He said, let's kill that one man, stop this at its head, stop this before it becomes a problem. And now they killed him, but it's become a problem. And we know that because if you look over in Acts chapter 4, verse 21, when they're trying to figure out what to do about Peter and John, it says, after threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. The whole city knew about this miracle. The whole city knew about this group of people. The whole city knew about what they were doing and that they were growing and that this thing was a big deal. That's the climate we're in when Peter and John go to the temple to pray. That's what they're facing. They've got an antagonistic set of Jewish leaders who've already killed their master and they're probably next. What they're doing is not in secret. The fact that they are teaching about this Jesus is not a secret. The very Jesus they had already killed. The, the, the reality that they could be arrested at a moment's notice is very real to them, as we find out very quickly in this story. And yet here they go to the temple to pray. And where do we know in Acts chapter 2 they were meeting regularly? In the temple, right? That's where the church was gathering together, in the temple. I'm fascinated by the story of courage, by how, much, how, how difficult and dangerous it was for Peter and John and the other apostles to lead this group of people in this city. And yet they do it. 
And then while they're there, they find this lame man who has been lame. He's 40-ish years old, and he has been lame from birth. He is every day laid there at the same gate. Everyone who goes in that gate sees him. They all know this lame man. There's, uh, in a city of that many people in that small a space, you're going to know this lame man, right? You're going to recognize he's there every single day. We know that guy. We know him by name. I have given him money before. And Peter and John heal him. They heal him. Here's a man who's never walked before, gets up, has strength placed in his legs, and he walks with Peter and John, and I would imagine not walks. He jumps for joy and skips along the way with Peter and John, joyful and exuberant with his new healing and his new ability to walk and his ability to get back to serving or, or doing life the way he's always wanted to do life. And he is praising God for what they have accomplished. And Peter takes the opportunity to preach a sermon. I want to read a portion of the sermon with you, if, if you don't mind. We talked this morning about hearing the word of God, right? So let's, let's practice that tonight. If you will, in your Bibles, Acts chapter 3, you're welcome to read along, you're welcome to just listen. But here's a portion of the Peter preaches there. Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, we are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who he has appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from his people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel to those after him, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through the offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. 
that's Thurman. Could you imagine walking into a crowded, crowded room in downtown Birmingham and laying out accusation after accusation of sins in front of those people, what kind of response would you expect to receive? I, I don't know that many of us would expect to get out of the room, and, and we don't live among nearly as full of a people as the Jews were. But Peter doesn't hold back, does he? I mean, when he starts this sermon, it is accusation after accusation. You handed over Jesus. You denied him. You denied the holy and righteous one. You asked to have a murderer released. You acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. That, that, that's bold. That's courageous. That's dangerous, what Peter does here. Yet it is interesting that he moves straight on from the accusation where he basically says, you have made an awful place for yourself. And then he preaches hope. He does it through pointing out that this was God's plan, that God prophesied, it was God's providence that led to Jesus being on the cross, that they were basically part of a plan that God put in place to bring about salvation, and he offers them hope again. Because of the promise of Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed through this one, through this descendant, through the one that was to come. God has sent that one. Who is that one? The sermon makes it obvious. It's Jesus. And so Peter preaches this incredible sermon, and because of it, many believed. Many joined the church. It's interesting to me the way it reads down here. They arrested Peter and John. Meanwhile, mine doesn't say that, but I, I read that into the text there in verse 4 of chapter 4. Meanwhile, many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Uh, my impression here is that Peter and John are arrested and everybody goes, hey, what happened? To, it doesn't matter. Let's go get baptized. That, that's kind of the way things went. This wasn't a gradual increase to 5,000. This was a lot of people responded because of what Peter said, because of the lesson that he gave. A lot of people turned to the Lord because of this. So many so that the number came to be around 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. What an incredible growth that happened because of this sermon, because of this boldness that Peter has to get out there and teach the truth. Well, they come, they confront them, and they basically ask the question, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, my question has always been about this particular, uh, you know, inquiry. Do you think they didn't know? Don't you think they knew by what power Peter and John were doing this? Don't you think they had a clue as to what Peter and John's answer was going to be? 
I mean, I, again, I wonder if maybe we misunderstand the question, who gives you the right to get up and preach these sermons? Maybe that's more of the question of, uh, of you know, you're obviously just uneducated men. They, they marvel at that a little bit later in chapter 4. So who's your leader? Who are, who's really leading you now? We've already took care of the one leader, Jesus. Who's leading you now? And but the answer is Jesus. It, it's still Jesus. Peter takes the opportunity to preach again. Read with me his second sermon here, chapter 4. I'm going to start reading halfway through verse 8. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by the builder, which is from the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Any question now as to who and by what authority and by whose name they are doing this work? I, I don't know that Peter could have been any clearer than he was. You know, if you really want to know, it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Do you need me to spell it for you? I mean, that's kind of the, the impression I get there from the way Peter delivers that. Let me make this as clear as possible. Jesus Christ, the one from Nazareth, the same one you murdered, the same one God brought back from the dead, the same one, I mean, he, he's like just layering this. I want to make sure there's no confusion here. We are doing this by the name of Jesus. And it's by the name of Jesus that we can be saved. They knew the answer. He's the Jesus who God raised from the dead. He's the Jesus who was the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the Jesus that prophecy said would be rejected but would become the most important stone in the building, the stone by which everything is measured against and built. He is that Jesus. He's the source of healing. He is the source of salvation. Peter doesn't miss a beat. Peter doesn't back off at all, does he? Peter doesn't in any way try to, try to soften the blow here. He doesn't in any way try to make things easy on himself. He just tells the truth. And there's a reason. He does what he does because he does it for God and not for man. There's a lesson there. What we do, we do for God and not for man. You read on in the story and the Judas, Jewish leaders are amazed. And what amazes them is, first of all, the boldness. Verse 13, they observe the boldness. And it kind of takes them aback. It, it, 
how in the world are these men as bold as they are, especially considering they are uneducated and untrained men. But they recognize these are men who were with Jesus. And isn't that what makes the difference? Now, I find for us today, one of the struggles we run into is speaking boldly. And, and let me make sure you understand what I mean there. I don't mean speaking bluntly. I don't mean speaking rudely. I mean speaking boldly. Saying what needs to be said so that the ones who are listening will have no question about why you do what you do and who you do it for. Boldness. We struggle with that, I think. And I think part of the reason we struggle with that is because we are, we've spent too much time trying to please men. Peter has no interest in pleasing men here. I think the other reason is because we feel we are doing a job and we are doing it alone. And Peter doesn't feel that way. Peter's doing a job not for Jesus, but with Jesus. Do you see the difference there? He's not out there doing a job that Jesus commissioned him to do, uh, even though that's true. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creatures. He's doing the commission. But he's also remembering the second part of the commission. Do you remember what it says in the next verse? Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Peter's not just doing a job he was given for Jesus, but he's doing it with Jesus. He knows Jesus has his hand through this. He knows God is walking with him and standing with him and protecting him. And if God decided not to, I think Peter's words would be the same as those friends of Daniel, right? You know, God can save us from this fire, but even if God doesn't save us from this fire, we still won't bow down to your statue, O king. That's Peter. Peter's boldness is impressive. And so the Sanhedrin left trying to figure out what they're going to do about this. They say, what shall we do with these men? An obvious sign has been done. We can't deny the sign. The reason they can't deny the sign is down in chapter 4, verse 22. The man was 40 years old. I thought about that for a minute. Why does that matter? Could you imagine what your legs would look like if you had not used them in 40 years? Would they look normal? No. Your muscles would have atrophied. You'd have these little skinny bone, you know, skin and bone type legs. There'd be very little strength in them whatsoever. And if those legs were healed like that, don't you think those legs would look different? Nobody could deny that this man was the lame man by the beautiful gate. And nobody could deny that he had been changed physically by this healing. Nobody could deny the fact that a man whom everybody knew couldn't walk 
now could walk. There's no denying the miracle. There's no rejecting the fact that Peter had the ability to do what nobody else had the capability of doing, at least as far as the Sanhedrin was concerned. So they couldn't reject the miracle. Verse 17. They say, but so this does not spread any further among the people, lest threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they call him in. They say, hey, we know what you did. We want you to stop. If you don't stop, bad things are going to happen. Stop it or else. <laughs> We're not really told what the or else is, right? And Peter's response there is golden. Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. We're unable to stop speaking about what we've seen or heard. You know. He basically, Peter responds with, nobody's ever going to say, yes, you should follow the Sanhedrin and not follow God. The Sanhedrin was supposed to help people follow God. And Peter says, no, God, God told us to do this. So we'll keep on obeying God, and you keep on trying to stop us. And that's the end of the matter. Peter and John will not be stopped. And I'll tell you, their story can be our story. If we are truly convicted about what we believe, then we will not be stopped. It's just part of conviction. It's part of having that, that passion about something. You aren't going to have someone stop talking, make you stop talking. So Tant just got through reading the story Where the Red Fern Grows. I, I know probably many of you have read that. It's probably been many years. It's one of my favorite stories growing up. But because Tant was already an animal lover going into the story, and then he read the story of Billy Coleman, who loves dogs and works for two years, saving up money in order to buy his own hunting dog so that he can go coon hunting. And maybe the story's coming back to some of you who haven't read it in many, many years. Tant has decided he's going to save up his money and buy himself a dog. I'm all for it. Hey, anything that teaches your children responsibility and hard work, let's go, right? But the thing with Tant is that he is convicted about this, and it is the only thing he talks about at all. We will be talking about something different, and you will see his brain just shut off from listening, and you know he's thinking about dogs again. I mean, that's just where his brain is. And we know he's thinking about dogs again because the next words out of his mouth are, hey, what do you think about this kind of dog? Like, I mean, it's just he's fixated on dogs because he's convicted. When's the last time you were convicted about something? convicted and impassioned in such a way that you couldn't stop thinking about it, talking about it, sharing details about it. I can't get upset with Tant because I'm the same stuff and I'm 
way about projects. I get fixated on a project that I'm working on, and I will think about nothing else uh, in spare time except for the project that I'm working on. And, and it is, when you're fixated, when you're convicted, you can't be stopped. When, when you are convinced that something is a certain way, a certain idea is in your head that this is the way it is and any other way is wrong, you can't be stopped. That's what we saw in the last political cycle, is it not? People who were so convinced about their way being the right way and the other way being the wrong way that if you ever opened up that door of conversation, you were very certain about what they believed about it. Right? Any of you all experienced that with people? They can't be stopped. When you're truly committed to something, you can't be stopped. When you're clear about what your mission is and your mission is for someone you are convicted in and convinced of and committed to, you can't be stopped. Now, the flip side of this is also true. If you are of the opinion that the church is no longer growing, the church is no longer reaching people, and the church is no longer effective, and the church is no longer doing the commission we've been given, and the church is no longer doing the thing that it's supposed to be doing, the answer is right here on this screen. It's because the church is no longer convicted, the church is no longer convinced, or the church is no longer committed. That's the answer. You want the church to be back doing what the church should be doing? You want Christians to be doing? If you want yourself to be back doing the things you're supposed to be doing, the answer is get convicted, get convinced, get committed. That's what helped the church grow in the first century. That is what has helped the church through the years. That is what will help us today. You want to see us look like the early church. This is where it is. And so I hope we read these stories as we go through the book of Acts. And this is what we see again and again and again. Peter and John and Paul and Barnabas and Silas and James and Philip and all of these great heroes of the early church, they all had this same common thread. They were convicted about what they believed. They were convinced in the job that God had given them to do. They were committed to the God who had given them the work, and they were going to go out there and do it no matter the consequences, no matter if that meant getting arrested, no matter if that meant dying for the cause of Jesus, no matter what that caused them to lose in their personal life. They wanted Christ glorified. And so they did what was necessary to make it happen. If you find yourself struggling with sin, problems on this screen. Somewhere you're not convicted or convinced or committed to what God has called you to. If you find yourself struggling in your marriage, the answer is right here on this screen. You're not convicted or convinced or committed to what God has called you to. I, I don't know what the, what the struggle is you struggle with, but I, I tell you the answer is right here on the screen. Figure out where the hole is 
and fill it up with being convicted, convinced, and committed. I hope all of us can learn to be a little more of what Peter and John were here in Acts chapter 3 and 4. Because I, I tell you, just like we talked this morning about the simplicity of the early church, there's a simplicity in this. If I'm just convicted to serve God no matter what and to do what he says to do, I don't have to sit there and have a debate in my mind about whether I should or shouldn't be baptized. Well, this church says I shouldn't and this church says I should. You won't care about all of that. You'll just care, does the Bible say get baptized? Yes, right there, I'm going to get baptized. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. Good enough for me. I'm going to go obey. Because you're convicted and convinced and committed to doing things God's way. If that's you, and there's something deficient in your life, something not being done, something, some hole, please let us help you fix it. Whether that be being baptized into Christ tonight or whether that be us praying for you to help you, we want to help you. So if you need the invitation to get your life right, please come forward and let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing this song. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.